This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Surrounded by steel and aluminum workers, President Trump just this week signed an order on steel imports in the Roosevelt Room of the White House. The steep tariffs on imported steel and aluminum from every country except Canada and Mexico amounts to the boldest move to date for the president who campaigned on a protectionist platform that is really quite at odds with the Republicans' free trade orthodoxy. In fact, it was so at odds that it involved and triggered the potential ouster of his own National Economic Council advisor, Gary Cohn, and also signaled a lot of backlash and heat from some of America's longest allies and partners in the global trade community, Canada and Japan. Not only does this new tariff create new taxes at different rates for the importation of steel-based supplies and aluminum-based supplies, but it also has a massive ripple effect both on our own economy domestically here in the United States, as well as the way that we treat global trade in the 21st century marketplace. To unpack further what this might mean for the future of trade and the future of American identity when it comes to a reliable trading partner is Nomi Gohir. Nomi is an associate at Wilkie's Global Trade and Investment Practice in Washington, D.C., where he provides advice and assistance to a range of clients and government regulation on international trade with a particular eye to export controls, economic sanctions, anti-money laundering, and foreign investment in the United States. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Nomi, thanks so much for joining American Enough. No, happy to be here. So I, I kind of just want to start with the basics. Obviously, there was this massive action this week, um, and there was a lot of debate that led up to that action um, as to whether the president would or would not even have this signing ceremony in the Roosevelt Room at the White House. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly happened and what the Trade Expansion Act would allow a president to do or not do in these circumstances where they feel an industry of the American economy is being threatened? Sure. Um, so what happened was actually that, as we know, that they, President Trump decided to institute a tariff of 25% on steel imports and 10% on aluminum imports. And this action, Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, was really put into place in order to serve as a mechanism that could protect U.S. national security interests in the face of particular imports of particular products. So this report uh, is actually produced by the Department of Commerce in consultation with the Department of Defense and that it analyzes whether any particular type of product would actually impair U.S. national security. Um, as a result of that, that there the kind of range of remedies that are actually available to a president when faced with, you know, an affirmative action or a recommendation by the Commerce Department stating that, you know, imports of a particular product actually do impair U.S. national security. The the U.S. kind of international trade policy apparatus can actually suggest a range of options that can uh, serve to actually protect that 
very interest that is being threatened. So in this particular case, it was a blanket tariff on all imports of steel and aluminum into the United States, originally regardless of which country that they were coming from, but then eventually that language has been tamper or tempered down a bit to exclude Mexico and Canada right now, and that there are also currently uh, supposedly talks going on with Australia and the EU as well. And that's uh, I kind of want to unpack that a little further, because at first, um, it might seem odd to your sort of casual observer of, of the news or, you know, America's position in the global trading community, that trade with other countries would pose a threat to the United States um, from a security perspective or otherwise. Um, what, what specifically is happening with the, the state of aluminum or the pricing of aluminum and steel that this review triggered an actual declaration that, hey, you know what, if we continue to trade at these rates, it's going to hurt us as a nation? What was the, the logic model behind that thought process? The logic model and what the report kind of covers is that over the last few years that the number of steel plants and uh, like smelters, foundries for both steel and aluminum effect, well, there was only one closure for aluminum because we actually import about 90% of the aluminum into the United States, but for steel, we import about a third and that there have been several factory closures as well as smelting uh, plant closures. And so as a result of that, the the report was there to kind of show that if U.S. production continues at its current utilization level, that it will lead to further closures, and that could actually threaten U.S. national security because our defense capabilities require steel in order and aluminum in order to actually, you know, operate at its peak capacity. Oh, got it, got it. Okay, and so you know, for when it comes to a a tariff specifically. Um, that, that that's a very very specific action that the government can take, and as you mentioned, um, in, in the Trade Expansion Act, Section two thirty two gives the President of the United States that um, explicit ability to be able to not only do the national security review, but also query whether or not there's a specific action that could occur um, in the trade world. And as as you've advised different clients, um, what are some of those different actions? I mean, certainly there's you know taxing aluminum or imported steel and aluminum at a different rate. Um, but there are also just for for making sure that the playing field is a bit level, that there are other actions that the government can take. I'm curious if you could just outline some of those and what you've seen in your work over time, and then why someone might believe that if if we just have to pay a little bit more money to get those same products, all of a sudden that creates a difference in approach for our national security as a country. Yeah, sure. So usually like this category of kind of trade measures, they're called trade remedies, and they tend to fall within three groups. So the the first group being um, anti-dumping duties. So this would be when products that are being imported into the United States are actually being dumped at what would be considered a, a lower than fair market value or lower than the cost of production of that actual product. And, you know, this can be done for a variety of reasons, but oftentimes it's that if it's lower than all of its competitors within the United States, or if the imported product is cheaper than all of its competitors' products, that eventually the competitors will no longer be able to compete and close down, and so it will just expand the market for the importer itself. Um, another category is countervailing duties, which are actually duties similarly put um, or tariffs put on 
particular products at the border that are in response to illegal subsidies that are provided by the government of the exporter. So uh, the United States and China have been going tit for tat on uh, countervailing duties uh, extensively for a while now because of various types of subsidies that China has provided to its exporters, such as, you know, interest-free loans, land grants, and things like that. And so this countervailing duty action can actually offset those subsidies to, again, make it a more level playing field. And the third, uh, the third group, which is what this action would kind of fall under as well, is uh, safeguards. So safeguards were traditionally put into place. Again, these were tariffs put on particular products at the border when there is a surge in imports that could actually threaten the U.S. economy in some way, shape, or form. So these actions have actually come across. There is a variety of different safeguards that have been put into place in a variety of ways that they can be imposed. But, um, for instance, President Obama actually imposed a safeguard measure for the import of Chinese tires in 2009 hmm. um, that placed uh, a descending level of duties on tires over the course of three years uh, in order to allow U.S. tire manufacturers to actually um, ostensibly to kind of build up their capacity again and then to kind of help sustain the business. So um, how – and the second part of your question, could you repeat that again? Yeah, yeah. Just I'm, I'm curious why in these – in this instance, then, if so, if we're adding a new safeguard to steel and aluminum in particular, what's sort of the, the rationale that all of a sudden this is going to help improve America's national security posture? Um, it, it seems like all of a sudden, you know, even though President Trump campaigned on a more protectionist mentality in which he wanted to, you know, retreat a bit away from the world and, and establish an America first policy that a global trading regime has not only been core to our economy, but frankly, the ability to trade with the United States seems pretty foundational to multiple economies around the world. And so it, when you have a review that occurred on this issue um, that triggered the ire of the Canadian prime minister, the Japanese prime minister, traditional allies in our pursuit of national security, um, it, it would seem that we're actually a little bit more threatened than we were um, two weeks ago, because now we have our allies questioning our partnership, at least as trading partners. Um, so I'm, I, I was more interested to identify from your perspective, you know, tactically, what does a safeguard like a 25 percent tariff on, on steel and a 25 or sorry, 10 percent tariff on imported aluminum do for the desire to pursue national security when we already have uh, allies around the world starting to yell at us about what we just did? Yeah, I mean, I think very much like you identified, it just kind of erodes relationships with allies rather than kind of the focus of this tariff, which is clearly on countries that are kind of, I guess, practicing an illegal trade tactics. I mean, and it's focused on China. However, it's just misguided because our four largest uh, or the four countries that we import the largest amount of steel from are Canada, the EU, Mexico, and South Korea, which are very much allies with the United States. So a blanket tariff, which I guess has been reined in now to exclude Canada and Mexico, barring like what happens with the NAFTA negotiation or renegotiations, um, it just serves to just further kind of alienate the United States. Uh, one thing would be, yes, America first amongst globally, but then 
And this was actually a criticism that was actually put forward from the Department of Defense as well, or maybe not a criticism, but a commentary stating that putting blanket tariffs on steel and aluminum could just serve to alienate our allies rather than actually, you know, a more focused action on the actual countries that are causing issues within the iron and the aluminum industry globally. Mm -hmm. That's China. And we know that China has been at, you know, operating and providing uh, steel at just an overcapacity, and they've been doing that, and that's been bottoming out the prices of steel globally for a long time. And we have what's a little bit frustrating and a little bit difficult to see what the logic is behind this is that we do actually have more focused remedies and that we are very much using that – in the actual summary of the report itself by Commerce, it shows that we have 169 ADCVD orders on steel with 29 against China specifically right now. So these are existing the orders on steel into the United States from China. And there are 25 cases that are currently ongoing as well. And then with aluminum, which we import a lot less, there are only two ADCVD orders in place generally, and they're both against China with four ongoing cases. So. That can, would actually can you can you can you quickly of, um, just define what uh, an ADCBD order is for our audience? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So as I just summarized before, so like two of the so there are three groupings of trade remedies being anti-dumping, countervailing duty, and safeguard. And the result of each of these actions, like the Section 232 report we found, was that uh, the way that the conclusions of these investigations are actually conducted is that a tariff is imposed to actually you know, tax the product when it comes into the United States to actually then match what would be considered a fair price for that product. So in this case, the tariff would actually be implemented through an order. So it would be an anti-dumping order that would then institute the tariff or a countervailing duty order that would then institute the tariff. And that the uh, Customs and Border Enforcement is actually the agency that actually conducts that process of actually instituting and collecting the duties or the tariffs on those products themselves got from it. the order. Got it. Got it. And I mean, uh, one thing that's that's particularly frustrating um, our allies overseas is that. Well, we should say even in addition to allies overseas, even uh, folks within the U.S. government, particularly within the State Department and the Commerce Department that help leverage uh, diplomacy, both commercial diplomacy as well as just geopolitical diplomacy to ensure the United States is that – there, are, there's a lot of debate. Even though the president has had the, or made this declaration already within his own ranks as to who wins and who loses around these circumstances. So even if you accept the premise that this is a national security challenge, that we will be better off if you have these price adjustments, and that the large users of steel and aluminum, including the defense industry, but but certainly several other industries, everyone from you know a, a cola and or beer manufacturer to folks that are you know using steel or aluminum in their supply chain for even you know making our genes will all be impacted and there's a debate brewing about you know who are the real winners and losers in this circumstance um, notably the former White House uh, 
Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Austin Goolsby, even said that this choice to add these tariffs on, on steel and aluminum imports will actually destroy uh, two American jobs for every one job it protects in the, the U.S. steel and aluminum industry. So politics aside, I guess I'm just curious, how will this shake out? Who are the, the, the sort of winners and losers um, when it comes to you know everyone from daily consumers to, to industry titans that might be impacted by this actual analysis? announcement by the White House? I mean, I think that's kind of more the open question. And it, it is, you know, it remains to be seen whether the industry is the, what we would say, like the upstream industries. So like you were saying, like the beer and the gene manufacturer, but it's also like more substantively the construction industry or the automotive manufacturing industry. Um, there, These industries are responsible for a significant number of jobs. And you know, there was actually a recent, there was a number put out recently by Harvard saying that there are 80 times the number of jobs in these upstream industries versus those in the steel industry or the aluminum industry. I mean, the steel industry right now employs probably under 250,000 people. And that, mm -hmm. when you compare that against, you know, the entire industry, 250, I remember someone reading somewhere that Arby's employs 80,000 people. So you talk about like just the size of this industry, wow. the way that the industry is actually developing right now is that they're able to be, and this is just steel in general, like globally, that these industries are becoming more efficient so that they can produce the same amount of steel with a lower amount of workers. And you can't imagine that, you know, these are businesses. And if there is a possibility to create, you know, more efficient economies of scale or whatever, like just the way the technology is moving, why would they continue to employ these people if the way that technology is moving anyways, they can produce the same amount of steel with a lower amount of workers? Um, you know, demand is demand. And if it just goes to show that this is going to have a very wide ranging effect on a lot of other industries. And solely for what are essential political points, Trump stated during his campaign that he was going to help out the steel workers and, you know, that this protectionist uh, tone of America first is that it's focused on these very key states that have this substantial steel offering. They happen to be swing states. So I think trying to come up, they it's. The widest risk, which you kind of identified at the very beginning of this, is not necessarily that, okay, so the price of a can of beer may go up uh, half a cent because of the tariffs, or a car that you're buying, maybe it'll cost 50 or 100 more dollars. It's more about how are our allies and other trading partners going to retaliate in response to this, that this is how trade wars start, and that's what everyone is concerned about, that – we just don't know what other countries are going to do in response to a unilateral tariff that has this nebulous national security reasoning, which is baked into the WTO as well. Article 20 of the GATT actually states that countries have the ability to institute measures when it actually comes to protecting their own national security, which you could see that when this was signed that – how can you, you know, you're expecting countries to kind of give some of their sovereignty over to an international organization and that is that international organization also in the business of telling countries what's within their national security interests or not? Like they're just not going to do that. 
So it's more of, well, other countries now, we also have our national security interests and we have our own economic interests, that if you decide to actually institute this without a lot of quantitative backing that an anti-dumping uh, or a countervailing duty action would actually have in place, then what are people, this was always considered a nuclear option. So are people actually going to start down this slippery slope of saying that, well, we're going to block or we're going to put a quota on imports of American corn because it's not we need to grow our own food. And that's international security interests. People just don't know how far other countries are actually going to take this in response. That's that's an incredibly poignant point, because I think for for many um, you know, separate and aside from whether you believe the merits of, of the Trump administration's argument, um, it, it will have very, it, very intense and very real downstream ripple effects across sectors and across countries. Um, but trade has never been an easy topic. Uh, you referenced the World Trade Organization, and you know, often the WTO has been the uh, playground of protesters, if you will, um, over years when they've held meetings both in the United States or in other host countries um, in terms of just discussing normal WTO business because it can imply everything from, uh, you know, perhaps trading with countries that don't necessarily have the best worker conditions um, in, in certain parts of Southeast Asia, for example, or trading with countries um, that, you know, if we try and create a more robust two-way flow of trade um, at reduced rates and, you know, reduced barriers to trade through trade agreements um, like the, you know, Chorus Agreement with Korea or NAFTA with uh, Canada and Mexico, that it could help deplete uh, American jobs. And so this sort of push and pull around trade, how to do it correctly, how to do it effectively, and how to do it in the interest of both the global economy as well as the domestic economy in question um, has been multifaceted. So so to not push those issues aside, um, there is still a broader concern, though, that if you have a foreign policy that is this volatile in which you, know, you don't give uh, your other colleagues of the WTO a more robust heads up or you know, try a, a more a more robust process in which members of your own government are able to, to offer their views and counsel to the president before he or she makes their decision, then you're starting to create this aura around the United States under this protectionist doctrine that maybe the United States isn't the most reliable trading ally. Um, is that a fair assessment or will the United States still always be a core partner in crime for um, many allies and, and foes around the world so that way they can extract the goods that they want from the U.S. and that we can get the goods that we want from other countries? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of identified the main point. Look, at the end of the day, the United States is still like the largest market on earth and that a lot of other, other countries need to drive their own growth with you know, exports, with an expansion of capacity. They need those exports, and their own markets aren't large enough, so they need to send it somewhere. United States is still the largest market. They have a lot of power from that you know, kind of fact itself. But it is also you – know, there's this element of uh, stability and risk that comes into any business, but then trade in particular that – it requires investment in order to actually create these, you know, various capital intensive industries that are looking to find markets for their exports. And that if the United States is just shown to just not be a relying, reliable trading partner, they will find other markets. And we've seen a lot of growth in the developing world, um, you know, across a lot of different countries that 
if the risk and if the, the barriers and the lack of reliability on actually having an open market don't exist, that you may actually create enough of a cost that people go seeking other markets, that they don't even – that America is no longer a central part of the conversation, which is, I think, what the Obama administration had really tried to do, and particularly under the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that – what it was really trying to do was to build a 21st century agreement, an agreement that would benefit all the countries involved, that would ensure that trade is being conducted in a fair way, but that still continues to benefit all the members. While also, yes, and I think a lot of people spoke about it, seeking to isolate China's influence in the region as well, which the pivot towards Asia that Obama used to speak about, that with all of this kind of retreating into itself with the protectionism and these tariffs and things like that, I, it's just, I don't know, how can you rely on someone who, you know, kind of comes out of nowhere with these tariffs on nebulous reasons and that doesn't seem very interested in contributing to that global market, that no one just wants to serve as a market for America's exports, that there needs to be some quid pro quo. And if, that's not there. There are a lot of countries that still carry significant economic weight and that they can retaliate on their own or they can move on to other markets and other agreements. I mean, the other remaining 11 countries in the, in the TPP, they signed their own agreement that is largely based on the one that was negotiated with the United States, but they're moving ahead without us. And is that in America's interest? I, I can't imagine it would be. Right. And that, that the Trans-Pacific Partnership that you referenced was actually just signed by those countries this last week. So particularly telling juxtaposition between America's actions right now and you know the rest of the global economy. But one thing that you mentioned um, that may be sort of outside the scope of, of just the president's actions recently is sort of something that you hearkened to earlier, which was more efficiencies within uh, a lot of these industries. So part of those efficiencies, I imagine, would uh, be fueled by new technologies and new automated tools that enable um, perhaps uh, a faster output of products like steel and aluminum, but perhaps um, fewer jobs within the industry itself. Uh, and, and actually, when the Trump administration decided to reopen negotiations around the NAFTA agreement, for example, um, at one of the, the meetings among the United States, Canada and Mexico, down in Mexico City, there was actually a pretty deep conversation and element of this, which is uh, how do you account for some digital economy considerations that are now obvious to us, but perhaps were not as ubiquitous in concern or scope when the um, negotiators for the U.S. Trade Representative's Office was negotiating this deal uh, back when NAFTA was put together in the early 90s. To what extent do you think the advent of new technologies, whether it's automation or otherwise, just sort of in this digital everything world, will change aspects to how either the United States conducts its trading posture or, or other countries approach trade negotiations? I mean, it's difficult to say. I think with the advent of digital trade, it also speaks more to uh, trade and services, which is a newly developing kind of, or it's newly developing in importance, especially for the United States. That, you know, as our manufacturing base has declined in the U.S., our trade and services has increased significantly, and that's what I believe that this trade, you know, digital trade would really be composed of. That there's fewer products that are actually, you know, physical products that are crossing borders. But there are these services that are being provided by U.S. companies. And I think 
maybe it speaks more to just the larger kind of reputation of the United States as a reliable trading partner, that if the United States has gone, you know, about its own business, America first, we conduct only policies that are in the benefit of the United States, which free trade, and that's, I think, the underlying current of all of this, that like free trade is always in the interest of the United States. But um, fair trade is also extremely, extremely important as well. But within this vein of digital trade, that it's more about like how far are we going to erode our relationships with our allies to the point where they don't even want to come to the negotiating table. It's more about that you need goodwill on both sides in order to actually conduct these negotiations. And if that's just continually chipped away at, I mean, these agreements are difficult enough to actually put together and that if you are attacking these people that you're at the table with from different fronts, why should they continue to go along or actually believe anything that you're actually saying or saying that you're bringing to the table? I think that may be the larger kind of challenge that's being presented here. You know, it's it's interesting because the resonant theme of everything that you're laying out here keeps, uh, you know, evoking this this, uh, concept of choosing Americans or certain Americans above other aspects of the whole picture, sort of a, you know, taking a look at certain trees as opposed to the overall forest. Um, And this tends to be a operating mode for this administration. We certainly have seen the exclusion of uh, certain communities at, sorry, at the expense of other communities. So, you know, notably we saw this with the, with the immigration and travel ban. Notably we see this with this action of, you know, picking up to defend um, the steel and aluminum industry, perhaps at the expense of relationships with other countries, or perhaps even at the expense of certain Americans whose pocketbooks might be impacted by, by slightly higher costs, even if they're slight, um, at, you know, when they're, they're paying for different products. Um, we also even see it when it comes to the, you know, the choice of, you know, that we can't necessarily have a budget or tax agreement negotiated with Congress unless we have a deal with, um, you know, the Dreamers and sort of DACA protections around the immigrant side. So there, there tends to be this steady drip of overtures from the administration that if you do X, then you have to sacrifice Y. If you choose them, then it has to be at the exclusion of these other others. Um, you know, zooming out from just this action on, on tariffs and steals, um, do you think, and, and particularly as a, as a trade attorney that has clients who have business, who has business um, with clients across the globe, um, is this risky in terms of America's perception overseas? Uh, is this cr- going to create a sense that America continues to exclude some at the expense of others, um, and are you are you seeing that play out in the way that you or your law firm would have to deal with other global entities that perhaps aren't based in the United States, but are increasingly seeing this perception of how policies, actions, and rhetoric are shaping the character of the United States? I mean, I absolutely think that that's the case. I mean, more so with a lot of our, our clients and everything that. When we assist clients that oftentimes we come in when it involves investing in other countries or investments in the United States, and that in order to actually do that, these companies are looking to create a stable environment or or want a stable as an environment as possible so that when their investment, which takes time to actually implement, actually comes to fruition, that it won't be blindsided by some type of economic or, you know, I don't know, other policy action that seeks to exclude or 
creates anything other than an open investment environment or an open civic environment, um, all these things. I think, you know, the clearest way that this is being presented right now is that, you know, the decline in enrollment in the interna of international students in the United States. And I think that even though that hasn't been affected by the immigration debates and things like that, that, you know, student visas are still there, this is good for America, that we want students to be here, um, kind of attend our schools and things like that, that it just has created an environment like, why would I want to be there if no one wants me there? That America, I think traditionally, has always been an open country. It is a country of immigrants. And now, as a result of the Trump administration and the frequent dialogue regarding just the exclusive or the exclusionary nature of it, that I think that this would naturally kind of bleed into business as well. That's why would countries want to do business here if you can't predict what the business environment would be like or the civic environment. And I think stability is what's really being sacrificed here. And that will have a rippling effect across, like, I think, the economy, especially global trade. Absolutely. And if that stability in, in either character or ability in sort of sorry, stability or in American identity or even stability in, in, in anticipating and design, designing business goals and strategies or stability in American trade policy starts to shift like quicksand, then, you know, that certainly poses a, a an important um, inflection point for consideration among business, among citizens, and of course, among the global trading community. Nomi, go here. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. And uh, we will continue to stay in touch as we observe how these actions by the president this last week unfold for the broader economy. No, thank you. Really enjoyed it. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.